Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role that joy plays in our own journey. Welcome to episode 57. I'm Paula Jenkins, a life and career coach and the host of Jumpstart Your Joy. Today, I'll be talking about what failure has taught me about balance. First, though, I want to give you a big warm welcome and say thank you so much for listening. If you want to subscribe to Jumpstart Your Joy, we're on all of the major podcasting syndication spots, iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Player FM. So you can head on over to iTunes and search for Jumpstart Your Joy and hit subscribe and then it will be automatically downloaded to your mobile device on a weekly basis. While you're there, I invite you to please leave a review and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you guys. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, you can find them on the website, which is jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 57. And over there, you can download a customized worksheet just for this episode that will walk you through how to reframe failure as a way to find balance in your life. I have an exciting announcement to make. My friend Christy Tending and I have created an e-course called Roots and Wings, and it is open for registration. It is a refreshing new way of looking at how to find balance in your life. Christy does an amazing job of teaching you breathing and and meditation techniques to help you recenter. And I lead you through exercise to define your purpose, outline your values, and define what really matters to you so you can truly define what balance looks like for you in your life. If you head to the website jumpstartyourjoy.com, you can find a link to this class either in the sidebar, you'll see Roots and Wings, or up at the top under Classes and Workshops. Christy and I are also hosting a workshop that you can join us for on Thursday, October 6, 2016 at noon Pacific Time. We are going to talk about finding joy in breath and balance, and it will offer you an idea of what our course will be like and give you four takeaway practices to blend into your life right now. Plus, if you register, we will be giving you a $10 off coupon if you use it before October 10th. So head over to the website, jumpstartyourjoy.com, and sign up for that right now. So this week is a solo cast where I will be talking about what failure has taught me about balance. I also shared thoughts on this over at Christy's site as a guest post and got a lot of questions and comments about it, so I figured it would be a great thing to turn into a podcast episode as well. So one of the things I know that stops so many of us right in our tracks is that fear of failing. It's that kind of icky and sneaky, tricky fear <laughs> that often actually masks itself as something else, but it lies just below the surface. If you've done any inner critic work, you may notice that the inner critic likes to fling this fear around with kind of like reckless abandon. You know, fears pop up all over the place, and they sometimes sound like things like, I don't deserve this, who are you to think you can do this? Why should you be the one to get this? Those kinds of things are often the voice of the inner critic. They're loud, they're a little bit brash, <laughs> and they're oftentimes, as I've, talked, as I've talked about in other episodes, 
really the way that your inner critic is trying to get noticed and trying to get you to stop stop in your tracks, but there's not a lot of substance below what they're actually saying. And so if you ask what's going on here, you actually usually find that it's a, it's fear. As you probably already know, I was a project manager before I became a life and career coach, and I'd worked at that job for over 17 years. One of the hardest lessons that I had to learn in that role was to let people, and by people, I mean teammates, people above me, people I reported to, and myself, I had to learn to let everyone fail. Because as someone who has people-pleasing tendencies and perfectionist tendencies, I very much wanted to swoop in and make sure that everything was being done, quote-unquote, right, and that it was all going to be done on time just as we had outlined. There was something very dear to my heart about making sure that we were delivering just as we had promised. But, of course, as with life, (laughs) any project oftentimes faces some turns and changes and people make new discoveries as one as you know as a team would go on a large project and most of the work that i was doing was large website builds or technology implementations and inevitably there would be something that came up there there would be no way of documenting before we started the project because we would have dug in and found something new or realized that one of the things that we'd outlined was actually something slightly different that the client had in mind which is just fine But things change, and then you realize that this thing, perhaps, that has been promised um, or discussed maybe is not as possible as we had once thought. It's just a fact. One of the things, though, that is so beautifully built into project management is change management, which means as a project grows and changes, there's there's a feedback loop that allows the entire team to sit down, look at things as they have changed, and course correct if that's if that's appropriate. Even as that was part of the plan, I will say that it's often hard for people people pleasers and or perfectionists to let go of this idea that we want to get it right the first time. And so over time and over a series of what I would call failures, ranging from small to epic, it kind of became clear that even with my best intentions and in throwing every tool I had as a project manager at a project, perceived failure was actually a very real possibility. So one example that I can think of that I didn't really share in the, in the blog post about this was there was one really large website build that we were working on for a high profile client and we were up against a deadline that tied in with a TV production, so a TV ad. All along, we'd been working with a specific resource, a person, and he had said and his boss had said that this person could do something that it turned out that he was not able to do. This was only revealed as we were getting very close to a deadline. And so it kind of brought everything into a perfect storm, as these kinds of situations often do. But where we realized we weren't going to make a deadline, and not only were we not making the deadline, but we were way, way behind, because this person had been telling us he'd been doing the work when all along he had, in fact, not been doing the work. So it left everyone in a very precarious position. Now, the creative side of me said, okay, well, there's got to be another way around this. And so I dug into my Rolodex and said, who else do I know that could help us with this problem? In the end, we found some very capable people, actually the ones who created Elf Yourself for, I think it's Staples, but to help us out with the pieces that we were unable to do internally. The good news is we didn't miss the deadline. We were able to show enough 
for the, the meeting that we were supposed to do, that we were fine. But still, in that moment, there was a lot of sense of failure, you know, that somehow the team had let our client down or that we were going to let the client down and that we were going to be in a lot of trouble. I think for me, both professionally and personally, the fear here is something around being, having it be discovered that like we don't know what we're doing, which is was not in fact true, we did, but that that would be the reputation that would start to set in and that somehow we would be asked to leave. Either we would lose the account or someone would be let go. And this really ties into that inner critic fear of probably something around the larger language of, you know, who are you to deserve this? And so if you get really comfortable with that, then it it ties into perfectionism and it ties into people pleasing because you don't want to be perceived as the person that can't do it or doesn't know how. And so that was the fear. But when I dug in and very creatively found another way around the problem, refusing to accept that this was actually going to happen, well, then we got out on the other side and I probably made a better site than we'd ever thought we could because we asked other people for help. And in a situation like this, when it looks like failure is inevitable, of course, there's that moment where you realize, oh my gosh, this is not working out the way we thought it would. So what are the other options? The other hard and real truth that I came to realize around failure at this point and in this example is that I was tying the success of a project to my own perceived self-worth. I wasn't extending grace or flexibility to myself because I simply could not deal with the idea that I didn't measure up, or worse, and here's my inner critic screaming at me, that it would become clear to everyone that I didn't deserve to be on the team and that I'd be asked to leave. So what were my options? I could keep fighting my reality, meaning the reality that this project was not going as planned, and I could try and keep forcing a fit around something that was causing me pain, meaning playing into that larger story that wasn't true. Or, and here's the other piece, I could accept that people fail, that I fail, and that things do go on. And not only do things go on, but people learn and grow and change when they fail in ways that would never happen if I as a project manager or I as anyone continue to try and control everything about a project that I was on. So it was this internal piece of grace and humility and, and simplicity, really, that led me to this place where I cannot solve every problem. I cannot rescue every person. And even if I try, sometimes the most gracious thing to do is to let someone go through the motions, learn what they will about themselves and their own process, and let them come out on the other side a stronger person. Because very truly, in some situations as a project manager, I could do the work. I could do some of the copywriting. I could do some of the accounting. I could jump in and write some of the reports that were due. But this was one thing that I could not do. I cannot do coding. I cannot. I could not do animation in this situation. And so it was a situation that definitely forced my hand because I could not fix it. But it also very graciously showed me that maybe it it isn't in my best interest to fix it because there's a team of people here. And I think there were two things that I really learned about about projects and about life and about balance from this specific example. One of them was I can't jump in and rescue anybody. It's not in my best interest to try and swoop in and change everything so that we meet the deadline or we 
look good or whatever it was or you know finish up the the deliverable because somebody else missed a deadline truly for people to learn and grow and change and become comfortable with their own skill set they have to know that they're being given the autonomy to do their work and for them to learn and grow and change they have to be allowed to fail the other thing that i started to realize and that i think makes a really big difference for any leader that is leading a team of people is having trust that the right people are on your team and that they will do what they say. And this is another piece of balance. It goes into, you know, kind of trusting that the people on your team are the ones that are supposed to be on your team. And if you don't have the right person on the team, then together as a team, you will figure out how to solve a problem. Now, right about the same time that this epic project went sideways on us, I also had started taking improv classes. And I will say that taking improv truly changed how I saw failure. One of my favorite lessons around failure has to do with an improv troupe I worked with for a while. Improv, while it's hilarious, and impromptu is also deeply vulnerable. So just to lay, get a lay of the land here, some people are confused by stand-up comedy versus improv comedy. Stand-up is a rehearsed and planned out comedy sketch or routine that a comedian gets up and says, usually by themselves in front of an audience. Improv, on the other hand, is usually done with more, more, more than one person, although it could be a single person. But improv is truly a art and a comedic art where you go out and you do not have anything planned. You usually rely on a suggestion from the audience or you start playing a game together. And without any sort of true rehearsal of that scene, a group or a person puts together a scene that is usually quite funny. So, while it is hilarious, it is also very deeply vulnerable. You get up in front of people and act out scenes from nothing. No script, no direction, no anything, except what you have in your head. It's a practice of total trust. Trusting in your troupe and trusting in yourself. Improv folks don't really set out to be funny, but they really kind of set out to be authentic. In my training, what I learned was that you should say whatever the first thing is that comes to mind and not try and force yourself to be funny. Because when you force it, you're generally not funny. But when you just say what comes to mind, it's usually hilarious because you're really the only person on this planet that would have thought of something in that same way in that moment. So when we worked together as a troupe getting ready for a show, we had a practice. And in doing this, we would just run improvisational situations. So we got comfortable working together as a team and as a troupe. So if somebody said something that sounded absurd or simply just wasn't funny or strangely awkward, they would put their hands up in the air and they would take an over-exaggerated bow and they would yell, I failed! (laughs) And then the troupe would applaud and clap and cheer and then the weirdness would be over and everybody moved on. And this practice worked because we all failed all the time. We would say something weird or slightly strange and not funny at all. And then we would just acknowledge it and let it go. The energy always changed after we all had this joyful bout of laughter and we were ready to get back in the zone together. What I also noticed about this practice is it was this act of trust. It was saying, hey, I see you. It's okay. We all make mistakes. We all fail. And it just happens. And I accept you for who you are. So it was a really beautiful practice. And with that lesson of the improvisational, I failed, I started practicing it elsewhere in my life. I let people fail. I let myself fail. I didn't do the full tilt bow and applaud at work or other places, 
but I started acknowledging when things didn't work. And I thanked people for trying new things because I knew inherently that it was vulnerable for them. I built more time into timelines and I spoke in different ways about what completing a task looked like. And instead of assigning a task to people, I started asking them, what can you do and when can you have it done by? Because I'm not really the one as a project manager in control of something. Instead, I'm the manager of the project who's overseeing everyone. And it's a very different thing. It's an act of trust and vulnerability and camaraderie. And that's really what a project team is based on. Accepting and then inviting failure led a gentleness and grace with my teams and with myself. It created more rapport, more fun, and more joy in the teams. Because it quietly said that we were not fighting failure but we were incorporating it and making better projects because we made improvements based on our learning. With this line of thinking, I invite you to start playing with how you can allow failure in your life, how you can welcome it in, how you can embrace it, and then notice what starts to change. If you're wanting to play with the ideas of failure, I have a few ideas on where you can start. So one way is to play with the idea that failure is an illusion. So if you're worried that you will fail at a task, stop for a moment and try and define what failure actually is for that given situation. If you wanted to use the example of you want to change, change your career, you might fear that no one will respond to your resume or that you'll dislike your new job as much as you do your current job. But I would ask, is that truly failing? Once you have that definition at hand, say no one will respond to your resume and maybe they don't, well, there's nothing truly lost. You can always go back and revisit your resume and put in more information or revisit the objective you have stated there and polish it up. But nothing is truly lost from having tried. Another way is to ask yourself, can you shift your view of trying something new to one that is play focused? So instead of putting high stakes around things that you're trying that are new, how can you make it feel more like play? Children experiment with things all the time. And they have no fear of failing because they consider it a game or they consider it playing. The building that maybe a child builds from blocks that can't support the weight of a 12th story, well, when that thing falls down, they just build another building. The cardboard fort that they built in the backyard gets rained on and it falls apart. Well, my, that happened in our yard and my son decided that it had become a cave and he went inside and started drawing, you know, cave drawings on the inside. So not only are things not a failure, but as a child, it's often that invitation that it's just another iteration of something else to do. And so what happens with, with whatever this thing is that you fear of failing at, what happens when it just becomes a game and it just becomes input? The real genius of this point of view or the idea that it is all play is that it, build, it allows you to build change into the process and it recognizes that in trying and building in multiple in iterations, innovation happens. And I see this too, like in the, in the Steve Jobs example of the iPhone, you know, and his quote of real artist ship. The idea is, is that if you wanted to hold on to anything until it was perfect, well, then you would probably never launch much of anything. Instead, if you can get something to market and start playing with it, then you have feedback and you get more information from your end users and you can iterate on that thing. Another way of dealing with failure is that you could decide to see it as a feedback loop. And if that's 
too fanciful for you. Try thinking of failure as nothing more than feedback from the universe. Maybe it's something that didn't work the first time, but there was information included in whatever that quote-unquote failure was on how to improve your idea. And so how does pulling in failure and the idea of failure lead to more balance? In my own life, in seeing and realizing and really internalizing that I could not control every situation and that no one can control every situation, failure really allowed me to start to live in more of a balanced way, in letting go of the expectation that I could make things perfect. Then I found a much happier middle ground in allowing people to do their own job and not in allowing people the space and time and ability to do their own job in their own way. I wasn't getting in and micromanaging anybody, which left me more time to do my own job and my own work. You can also allow this to spill over into your own personal life. If you can let go of the idea of something being a failure and really invite it as something in a way of playing and experimentation, then what happens? If you start to question, is there a right and a wrong way of doing something, and you allow yourself and your children and your spouse or your partner to just play and try new things instead of it being there is a correct outcome for things, I think you will find that there is greater balance and more humor and more joy in your life and in your family and in your days than trying to to have a death grip on everything and control it to a specific desired outcome. I think also letting go of the idea that something could have a failure releases you from the fear of it actually failing, which is kind of, <laughs> which is kind of a, I don't know, a catch-22. But if you can let go of being afraid of failing and knowing that there is no such thing as a true failure, then I find that my heart gets lighter and that I want to try more things and that I want to encourage other people to try more things. And I find that in releasing the attachment to an outcome, which is another way of talking about failure or releasing the idea of failure, but when we're not so tightly attached to the outcome of a project or a conversation or whatever may be at stake, when we can release the idea that there is one way for it to end that is right or wrong and we can let go of the attachment to it coming out that way, it leaves room for beautiful new things to happen and different and creative things to come to life. And so leaving that space for your family and your spouse or your partner and your coworkers and encouraging them to follow whatever comes up. And sometimes that means we all need to stay on task and work towards a goal. But when we're not so tied to the actual outcome and the exact steps to get there, it leaves room for innovation and it leaves room for fun and for trust. It leaves room for trust building and camaraderie in a way that if we as individuals are very tied at how things must be done, those things can't have life and they can't be breathed into action if we are going to control how every single thing is done. And so in that way, I see that letting go of the idea of failure and not being afraid to fail both of those things very closely tie into an easefulness in our lives and a welcoming of creativity and and really a furtherment of joy when we are not so 
so desperately tied to there being one way of doing things and seeing that failure would be the worst thing that could happen. And instead, we welcome in things that will go sideways and not go right because they are an opportunity to learn more things about ourselves and about our family or about our team. So if you guys want to learn more about this, if you would like to work through your own worksheet um, and go through some of the steps that I've outlined, head on over to the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 57, and you will be able to download that sheet right there. If you're curious about adding more balance to your life and you're ready to commit to making a change, you can also check out Roots and Wings on the website. Christy and I created the class and we have over 20 audio modules, journaling pages, and fun bonuses like wallpapers and playlists in the class. And we're going to be doing three live calls with a class participant. The links are on the site, jumpstartyourjoy.com. There's a link in the sidebar on the right-hand side or under classes and workshops. You can find a link there. And again, we're doing that workshop on October 6th at noon. So you can register for that and you will get a $10 off coupon just for registering. And next week on the podcast, in episode 58, I'll be talking to Michelle McQuaid all about the neurological effects and the neuroscience behind positive psychology. It is such an awesome conversation. She is an author, a a playful change activator, and the conversation is just full of fun and actionable ways to feel more positive in your life. And she also goes into the actual science behind it, which is a conversation that I have not yet had on the podcast. So I hope I will see you again next week. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.